0: If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Genesis chapter 3. That's the very first book in the Bible. And uh, just look for Genesis with a 3 after it, and you'll find Genesis chapter 3. And uh, we're going to dive into that in just a few moments together. There's Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you didn't come with a Bible or don't have one, uh, you're welcome to use that. And then you're also welcome to keep it if you don't have a Bible. Uh, One of the things that guides us as a church, um, and we just think about it from time to time, is that God is real, and that changes everything. And as we come to the book of Genesis, we are introduced to the reality of God again and again and again. And as we come to see that reality, we realize how it does, in fact, change everything in our worlds and in our lives. One of the things that we have is the Bible, which is the Word of God. It's a gift of God, it's the revelation of God to us. And through this revelation, He begins to describe for us why He created the world as He did. There are a lot of different cosmologies out there, there are a lot of different explanations for how the universe came to be. This is the biblical explanation, and I believe it is the right explanation because of who it comes from. And it's God's description of why this world was created, how it was created, and for its purpose and intention of creating this world. If you've been with us for a while, we've understood or looked at the scriptures and realized that God created this world to be a theater, He created it uh, to be a habitat for humanity. The purpose in all of his creation was to drill down quickly to a place where God would provide a habitat for male and female, men and women, humanity, to enjoy the wonders of his blessing, the wonders of his provision, and the constant abiding presence of God among them. Through the creation of the world in this theater of redemption, though, God also realized that this was the way in which he would display things about him we would never know. Had he not created this world? Things about him, his grace and his mercy and his love and his justice and his righteousness and his wrath and also his power to eradicate sin finally and fully. As we dove into this, and I've divided into um, acts, um, I don't know how many acts we'll have, but uh, the first act of this drama that's worked out on the theater of redemption, and by the way, redemption means to buy back or to call back or to free. And so we'll find out what it is that God needed to free us from, or why it is God needed to bring us back to himself. So Act 1, though, is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to uh, 2, verse 4, and it is simply the description of how God created this world. He spoke it into existence. And we quickly move from the universe, in which very little is said, to the habitable world on which man finally placed Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of that chapter, we find how then it's not a different story of creation, but it's a different lens or different focus as God now speaks about the unique garden that he had created and the garden in which he would place Adam and Eve. It's a wonderful story of his provision. It's a wonderful story and illustration of how male and female are created in the image of God. The world is blessed. They are blessed with overflowing bounty and goodness. It's this wonderful place that God has made. But then we come to Act 3, and this is where we dove in a couple weeks ago. Acts chapter 3 is uh, full of drama, and in fact, it's the most dramatic scene so far. I don't think it's the most dramatic scene in the Bible. I think there's four other, or three other places in the Bible which, which eclipse this for their sheer magnitude of impact on humanity. There's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No one could have seen that coming. Nobody could have understood that. But its influence on this world has turned this world upside down. And then there is the return of the Lord. We know that one day Jesus Christ is coming back to earth. It's going to be an astounding day when he comes back and he, we see him in of all of his glory and all of his power and all of his might. And then there's the days of judgment, when at the end of this age, God will bring all of our works, all of our words, all of our deeds uh, before him, and he will judge us according to everything that we have done, and we will enter into eternity. This is, though, I think, the fourth, if I could call it that, the the fourth most dramatic scene that's described in the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we have the introduction of a snake, which is just astounding. It says, all of a sudden in three, now the serpent. Where does the serpent come from? It's almost out of nowhere. But we realize in the next three or next seven verses that something extraordinary happens. That the humanity that God has made, Adam and Eve, that God has created to to have fellowship with him rebels against God. At the instigation of Satan, who is behind the serpent. And with an incredible economy of words, we find a description of why the world is as it is today. And the next verses in uh, chapter 3, starting at verse 8 to 24, which I'm going to read, really describe for us now the impact of those, that rebellion against God. I also, though, as I was thinking about it, understand it in my own thinking as sort of the seed plot of redemption. It's like this, the earth is the garden of God whereby now he plants all these seeds which are going to eventually grow and which will reveal, bring about, explain our redemption. That even in the garden, God has already at work planning to bring people back into a relationship with him. As we think about these verses, which I'll read in a few moments, their verse is not just about a story of what we see but it's a story about what we don't see. These verses tell a deeper story than simply a male and female's rebellion against God. They tell a deeper story about how God is going to work to bring them back into a relationship with him. How God is going to defeat and deal with the evil and the wickedness of the rebellion. Pay the penalty of that and replace the garments of human attempts with garments that God provides, garments of righteousness. In this, you'll see a pattern for your own life, for my own life, a pattern for every human life of how we respond to God, how we deal with God in our own sin. And we'll see how God has provided for us a way back to him. So the text is, if you have your Bibles open, Genesis chapter three, starting at verse eight. After they had sinned, says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called out to the man and said to him where are you and he said i heard the sound of you in the garden and i was afraid because i was naked and i hid myself and he said who told you that you were naked have you eaten of the tree which i commanded you not to eat The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent, that he deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man then called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, And the Lord God made clothes for Adam and Eve, garments of skins, and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Those words are full of an explanation of why our lives are the way they are. First, there's words in here that expose the reality of humankind. In these verses, we have the origin of two of our favorite games, hide and seek and the blame game. Eden was supposed to be the place of the presence of God on earth. It was a place where man and woman was to experience the joy and the fellowship and a relationship with God. Now the sound of God was no longer a welcomed one, rather it was a fearful sound. And I think that sound was likely the voice of God who called out to them, where are you? Obviously something had changed in their relationship. Something had happened that had come between Adam and Eve and God. Their natural response was no longer to find God. It was no longer to run to God. It was no longer to to welcome God and to walk with God and to talk with God, but it was to hide from God. It was to get away from his presence. The taking and eating of the fruit of this tree had resulted in instant spiritual death. They hadn't died physically, but they had died spiritually. They had died in the presence of God in their soul instantly sin had infected their whole body and their whole soul their conscience had been awakened by their act of rebellion they now knew right from wrong they now knew good and evil they now knew that they were in the presence of a holy god and they themselves were not holy so they hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden have you ever tried to hide from somebody Have you ever played that game of hide and seek in one way or another, quiet as can be? Legs and arms all tucked in around the corner so nothing is kind of sticking out anywhere so nobody will see you. Even your breathing stops and you try not to breathe so that they won't hear the sound of your breathing. I can picture Adam and Eve cowering, hoping that they will not be found by God. Amazingly, we still think we can hide from God. We still think, well, God didn't see me. Well, God doesn't know. In fact, the fool says in his heart there is no God and he does not see my actions. He does not know my thoughts. He does not know where I go. The reality is God knows everything. God knows everyone. God knows all our thoughts. God knows all our tracks. We cannot hide from God. And so God confronts Adam. Adam It says, God calls out to Adam. That's an interesting word that's used in many ways in Scripture. It's a word that is used in Psalm 105, verse 16, to speak of God calling a famine, as God brings judgment upon a land. It's a word that's used in Psalm 50 verse 1 where the sun is, uh, is summoned and, and, and it is called to, uh, to, to warm the earth as it rises and then as it sets. It's a word that is used to describe Jonah as he goes through Nineveh calling them to repentance. It's not just a, hey Adam, where are you are there's a There's an intention behind the call of God there. He called out to man. Notice, not to the woman, not to the man and the woman, but he called out to the man and he said to him, where are you? There's a point being made here that Adam was to lead, that Adam was responsible ultimately for the sin that had fallen on both of them. And he finds Adam cowering probably behind one of the trees and Adam says to him, well, I heard you in the garden, probably the voice of God, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Notice his first response is, I'm not sorry, or I'm sorry, God. I didn't know what I was doing, or I I disobeyed your command. What Adam did was he confessed his fear. He said, I was afraid of you. Rather than him being warmed and amazed and, and comforted by God's presence, he was fearful in the presence of God. There should have been a profound realization that there was a barrier between him. There was a profound realization that there was a barrier between him and God. He now recognized his distance from God. He now recognized that God was a holy God and he was unholy because of his sin. And when God says to him, who told you that you were naked? It's not the snake. It's not his wife. It's not that he saw his reflection in a pool in the garden. What was it? It was his conscience. His conscience had been awakened inside of him. The monitor that God has put in every human being. This conscience, this voice that that reminds us of right and wrong. This voice that stops us in our tracks. This voice that cautions us. This voice that is there because God has placed his law within every one of us. Every single one of us has this warning placed in us. Now we can sear it. We can dull it. We can We can um, squash it, but nonetheless, it is a monitor that God has placed in it. And that is how Adam knew that he had sinned because his conscience had been awakened. Since Adam and Eve and the garden, we have all been playing hide and seek from God. We don't want anything to do with God. We want all that God has for us, but we want nothing to do with a holy God. The blame game. God addresses the sin and rebellion of all three in the garden here Adam, the woman, and the serpent. Call it concealment, call it passing the buck, call it blame, whatever it might be. He begins with Adam, and it's astonishing what Adam does. The very first thing that he does is he throws his wife under the bus. It's astounding. It's, it's, it's astounding what has happened in his relationship with his wife that without hesitation, he says, well, it's the woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. If there ever was a mark of spiritual deadness, this is it. The woman who, had, who he had only probably weeks Earlier, we don't know how much earlier, but earlier when God had um, put him to sleep and pulled her out of his, or taken a rib out of him and created her. Remember his first response when he saw his wife? This one, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He rejoiced in God's gift to her, him. And now she's enemy number one. Now he looks at her and said, it's your fault that I sinned. Sin has already begun to erode the relationship between the man and his wife. Sin has already, in in almost a split second, changed his perspective from loving his wife to hating his wife. And instantly, Adam's relationship with God changed. Do you notice that? The woman you gave me, God, it's your fault. God, if you hadn't have given me this woman, I would have never eaten. God, if you hadn't have placed this in the garden together, I never would have sinned. God, if you hadn't set me in the circumstances that I find myself in, I would have never taken that step into sin. God, it's all your fault. We do the same today. It's always God's fault. Never our fault. And yet it's never God's fault. It's always our fault. I wonder if Adam was thinking... A good God would never have given me such a bad wife. I was reading a couple days ago, Psalm or Proverbs 19:3. A person's own foolishness leads him astray, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Do you find that? You make a bad decision, you sin, you err, you get in trouble, your conscience plagues you, something doesn't go right, and instead of owning up to your own responsibility, you say, God, it's your fault. You made me do this. Adam was trying to repel the conviction of sin. He was trying to deny it. He was trying to squish it down. He was doing everything he could do to get himself off the hook of having eaten of the fruit of the tree in the garden. And then God turns to the woman. What is this you have done? And the woman said, well, it was the servant who deceived me and I ate. The woman also defaulted to blame. She also did not go before God and confess her sin. She also didn't admit to her own sin. Rather, she blamed the serpent. It was the serpent's fault. And while it is true that the serpent deceived her, the serpent did not was not she herself made the choice to sin. I was deceived. She didn't have an excuse, and I ate. It's like Flip Wilson. Some of you are old enough to remember Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. This is what Eve is saying. See, our hearts are are inclined to blame all the time. It's not just Adam and Eve. We do the same thing today. Have you ever been caught red-handed? It's not my fault. It was their fault. Well, the money was just sitting there. This is... The reality of humankind sin is always our responsibility though read James chapter 1 verses 13 to 15 which talks about how sin is conceived in us by our desire and then how that grows and if we keep flirting with it and keep uh, keep playing with those thoughts it finally is full-blown into rebellion against God the reaction when we are found out is not blame it ought to be repentance That ought to be our first response, to accept the reality that we have chosen to rebel against God and simply come before God and say, God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And God is gracious and merciful and washes us and cleanses us. That is the right response when caught out in our sin. Then we have words of judgment so these words are not the favorite of our words. Nobody likes words of judgment, but they're necessary words. Often when you are watching a court case or you're reading a book and, and there's drama that leads up to uh, the jury's verdict and then the judge's pronouncement of whatever the sentence might be, everyone kinds of holds their breath and waits for what will follow. And here we see the necessary act of God, the justice of God now, as it is spoken into the rebellion against him and the rejection of his word. And the first thing he does is he now addresses Satan. He reverses the order. And he comes to Satan who had disguised himself in this serpent that was in the garden. And notice with Satan, he is neither questioned nor given an opportunity to explain. God doesn't say, what is this you have done? Why have you done this, Satan? There's no glimmer of hope for Satan. His end is sure. There is no word of grace for him. Rather, he will be cast into the eternal fire that was prepared for him. In verse 14, we find the physical snake is cursed. This is the curse, first curse of God in all the Bible. And the curse that God utters towards this particular beast. He says, More than the other livestock and more than any other animals, the snake is cursed by God forever to live on its belly and breathe the dust of the ground. Notice though, it's not just the snake that is cursed. All of creation is cursed. The snake is cursed more than all the other beasts of the field or the cattle. The impact of, of sin is massive. And as fact, you go to Romans chapter 8, verse 20, and we read there that all creation groans looking for the day of redemption Such a curse on the snake, too, is consistent with how the Bible describes what should happen when an animal kills a human being. It should be killed. Its life should be taken. Every beast of the field was made to be under the dominion of man and under the rule of man. That's what God said in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But here now you have that flipped around and you have an animal trying to dominate man, trying to reverse the order that God had made. And so God cursed the snake. And then to the power behind the snake, and we realize from Revelation 20, remember that the serpent is the devil, the fiery dragon, the ancient serpent. And God says, there will never again be a naive conversation between you and the daughters and the sons of God, because I will place enmity, I will place hostility between you. Remember Eve in the garden, she was not taken back by the serpent. She was not surprised. She was not shocked. It was this wonderful conversation. Oh, look at this. Let's have a conversation. Now, many of you even know that that the hair on the back of your neck sometimes goes up when you're in the presence of evil, even though you don't know exactly what it is, even though you don't know where it's coming from. This is part of the enmity that now God has placed between the devil and humankind. And he says there is now going to be A long, drawn-out feud between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. The seed there that's mentioned in verse 15 can be a single seed, a single person. It can mean an immediate descendant. It can mean a distant descendant, or it can mean a company of descendants. And what God is saying here, and this helps us understand the world, is there now will be a battle in the world in which you live. There will be a battle between these two families. We've talked about this before. There are only two families in the world. Ultimately, we all belong to one or the other. The Bible is really clear on this. We are either children of Satan or we are children of God. Either our father is God or our father is Satan. Either we are children of light or we are children of darkness. There are no third options. There are no third families. And God says between those two families now, there will be hostilities until the end of this age. That is why there's hostilities in schools and in universities and in workplaces and in homes and in politics and in economics. There is this tension now between these two seeds. And there will be until the end of the age. Satan's seed is natural humanity. Whom Satan leads in rebellion against God and against God's children. The seed of the woman are those whom God has called to himself and who love God and serve God and obey God. The seed of the serpent are those who disobey the Bible and who make it a practice of sinning. The seed of the woman are those who obey God and make it a practice of obedience. You can read Matthew chapter 13 verse 38 and there it describes the whole world and how there is there are only two types of seed in the garden of the world. And that those seeds are at enmity with one another until the end of the age. What hope is there? Well, there's the promise in this garden, which is just absolutely incredible. In verse 15, God says about the offspring, he now zeroes in on a particular seed, one individual offspring that will come from the woman. And he says, In between your offspring and her offspring, there will come one. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first mention of the gospel in all of the Bible. At almost the very beginning of the world, when the Bible was first written, this is a pronouncement of the cross. This is looking ahead to that great conflict that we just remembered as we went through Resurrection Sunday of this conflict where Satan thought he had won, where Satan had Christ hung on the cross, where Satan had Christ betrayed, where Satan had failed Judas to betray Christ, where, where all these people were amassed against Christ to bruise his heel. And he suffered and he died on the cross. But what happened? Christ defeated Satan on the cross and his resurrection was proof positive that Christ had crushed Satan's head this is the first gospel proclamation in all of the Bible in all of the world and there's three people that hear it and God is the preacher it's as though God has his feet shod with the gospel of peace it says God comes into the garden and says it's not all lost there is coming a savior there is coming a redeemer who will free you from the curse and from the bondage of sin. And that Redeemer is Jesus Christ. Now, some of us might be thinking, I was thinking this. It took me. A, I, I just needed to work this through in my head for a bit. You might be thinking, well, come on, Paul. It was only a bite of fruit. Like really, all Eve did was she just took one fruit, she ate it, and she gave a bite to her husband. What's the big deal? Well, the issue is not the magnitude of the sin. The issue is the magnitude of the one to whom we sin against. An eternal, infinitely holy, righteous, just God. You get a sense of the impact of that because it's not just Adam and Eve who will suffer. All of humanity is brought into their punishment. All of creation is brought under the curse. The whole universe is impacted by this one sin. And in fact, God says that the only way to deal with that one sin is to have one who will have his heel bruised, but he will crush the head of the serpent. One sin needed to be redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he turns to the woman and notice the judgment on the woman deals with her home and with her relationships. The judgment upon the woman is that she will be frustrated within her relationships. First, she will now have pain in giving birth to children. But it's more than that because I think it goes further and she says she will bear children in anguish. I I think that what God is saying, and you see this borne out in Scripture, is that there is unique pain that comes on a mother when children disobey and are foolish and rebel. There's a unique pain that even Proverbs will talk about that sometimes, about what the foolishness does to a father and also what the foolishness of a child does to the mother. And God says, now this woman, women will experience anguish in both the physical bearing of children and the emotional raising of those children. What was intended to be joyful will now be painful. Second, you will fight against your husband's authority, but he will prevail against you. In other words, the relationships between a husband and a wife now will be at odds. He says, you will, your, your desire will no longer be to serve alongside him, but rather your desire will be to master him and to control him. You, you see that in verse, um, in verse 16. To the woman, he said, Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 4, verse 7, where it says sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. In other words, you will want to rule over him. You will want to take matters into your own hand. But I've always determined that man is to lead in the home and so he will dominate you. What he's saying is that marriages now will be, con- will be characterized by power struggles. Marriages will be characterized by hostilities rather than love and cherishing. It's not that men are to dominate, but men are to lead in the home. And to the man, he said, because you listened to your wife's voice, and ate from the tree which I commanded you not to eat. There's a, just a world of comment that is in here. That man, God had given Eve to be a helpmate to man, to come alongside of him, to give him counsel and instruction, and here she led him astray. And he says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and eat from the tree which I commanded you to not eat, The ground will be cursed. Adam's sin of eating the fruit will now impact the rest of his days. The ground is cursed. Notice the ground over which Adam was to rule and which was to be under his dominion now will no longer submit to his rule and his dominion. And rather than bearing fruit, and rather than being easy to cultivate, it will now produce thorns and thistles, things that you can't eat, things that will be painful. There will be this tension in this reality. And what man has been called to do to, to work and to cultivate will now be hard work. And it's not work that is cursed. It is the environment in which one works that is cursed. You will eat plants of the field, not fruit from the garden. You will work until what? You die. And here is the penalty for their sin, physical death. From dust you came, and to dust you will return. I wonder what the mood was like in the garden. If Adam and Eve had any sense of the implications of their rebellion against God. Do you notice something, though, that we feel those today, right? It's not that Eve is the only woman that had pain in childbirth. It's not that Eve is the only one that struggled as her children wrestled with one another. In fact, one of them killed another one. It's not that Adam and Eve's marriage is the only one that felt tension and power struggles. It's not that their marriage was the only one where sometimes the woman wanted to dominate, but the man always won. Why is that? I think it's a constant reminder of the truthfulness of the word of God. It's a constant reminder that says, where does that come from? goes back to the garden and our rebellion against God. Our existence today reminds us of the reality of what once was and why things are the way that they are today. Do you see the grace of God even there? That when a woman gives birth to a child in her pain, it reorients her thinking, it should, to the garden and God. When men struggle with their jobs and tensions around their work, and as they approach death, it should reorient them to a reference point back to the creation of the world. And then finally, words that surprise us. Psalm 25, 6 says, O Lord, be mindful of your compassion and your faithfulness. They are as old as time. Do you understand what the psalmist is saying there? That from the beginning of time, in the beginning, God, from the beginning of time, God's compassion and God's faithfulness have been evident. How? It begins simply by Adam naming his wife Eve. This is the first time we know who Eve is. Up to this point, she's always called the woman. But we always call it Adam and Eve in the garden, but it's actually not Adam and Eve until they're almost kicked out of the garden. And what does he call her? The mother of all living. Do you understand? This is, I think, the first expression of faith in the Bible. Why? Because Adam and Eve, or Adam had heard God preach to the three of them in the garden. And God had promised that from the woman, a savior would come. And so as Adam names Eve, he says, she's the mother of living from whom a savior will come. And it's summarized in the prophetic act of God, where God made clothing of skins or out of skins for Adam and Eve. This is amazing that that Adam and Eve had tried to clothe themselves. It wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough. It it didn't hide their nakedness. And so God, actually, this is the first death in all of creation, in all of the world. There was no death before this. God killed one of the animals that he had created and took their skins and made clothing from that. And that was the first illustration that our sins could only be dealt with through the death of another. And so you see the whole sacrificial system throughout the Bible Again and again, describing the blood that was shed in all those sacrifices, which would point to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ, who shed his blood on the cross. Jesus paid it all. Who shed his blood on the cross, who died for us, who took our place, who bore our sin, who bore our curse so that we could be clothed with the righteous garments of Christ. This is stunning, what God did there. In the garden, he displayed his compassion and his mercy and his grace. We have a redeeming God. We see this in the fact that God didn't instantly slay Adam and Eve when they sinned. Remember he said, from the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of the evil, you shall surely die. The fact that God didn't slay them immediately immediately, points to God has a plan, God wants to redeem, that God wants to call them back, that God wants to show them the wonders of his grace and his mercy and his love. And he would give them an opportunity to repent and come back into a relationship with him. We find in there a seeking God. God comes looking for Adam. Do you know that you'll never look for God? You won't. our, Our sinful reality is we want to hide from God. We want to run from God. That's why we seek false religions. That's why we ignore God. That's why we put him out of our mind. Because we want to hide from him. We we don't want anything to do with a righteous and a holy God. But God, in his mercy, calls out to us. The fact that any of us are here today at this moment should say, wow, God, how am I here? Why am I here? This is the last place in the world I ever thought I would be. On April the 16th, 2023, it's because God wants you to hear his voice calling you. He's a righteous God. We see this in the fact that God punishes sin. But God has to be just. The justice of God has to be met. He can't sweep things under the carpet. And so the justice of God is pronounced through the judgments, but the The ability of God to justify is pronounced through the promise of a snake killer, Jesus Christ. The salvation of God, he will crush Satan. Do you know that? That's why we had Easter, Resurrection Sunday, where the cords of death, which were wrapped around us tight, were shattered by Christ. And the power of Satan was crushed. God who gives us a conscience. Are you not thankful for a conscience? Even though it might pester you and bother you. Are you not thankful for a conscience? Which God has given to remind you of your sin. Conscience is like pain to the body. If we didn't have pain in the body. We would walk on a broken ankle until we destroyed our ankle. And so God has given us a pain in our soul. So that we might not fall headlong into a path of destruction. He's a merciful God. Notice that he deals with man in the garden. He says, okay, we we need to get man out of the garden. Why? Lest he eat of the fruit or of the tree of life and live forever. I don't know about you, I am so sick and tired of sin in my life. I long for the day when I will be sin-free. I long for the day when I won't have another sinful thought, I won't have another sinful word, I won't have another sinful act. And that day is coming. But it comes through death. I can't imagine living forever never being free of sin. And so it is a mercy of God that he blocked their entrance back into that tree of life. And then finally, God of hope. Why? Because he doesn't destroy the garden. All he does was he, all he does, he, he, he blocks it He blocks its entrance with a cherubim, just powerful, mighty angels. And you can see them displayed through ancient history and all kinds of graphics and all kinds of temples. But just these incredible beasts, and he blocks them so that there's not a chance that man can get back to the garden. But he doesn't destroy it. Why? Because the garden is a picture of a temple of God. The garden was the original temple of God. And so throughout the rest of salvation history, God is going to create and devise a way back into the garden for us. He's going to open up that east entrance into the garden so that we can come back into the presence of God and enjoy a relationship with him unmarred by sin forever and ever and ever. In other words, by not destroying the garden God is saying you have a home to return to. Thank God for his grace and his mercy. Father in heaven, I thank you for this few verses in the Bible. It is huge. I pray that your word would work in our hearts and lives, Father. I pray that there would be a resonation in us, even though we might not want to face it, of our estrangement from you. That there would be something in us that says, yeah, you're trying to hide. You want nothing to do with God. You're afraid of God. Father, would you not let us stop though there if that's us? Would you help us to see that, well, yes, we should be afraid of you if we put our trust in Christ, we have no need to be afraid of you because the penalty of our sin is done. The justice of God has been satisfied in the death of Christ. The vindication of God has been proven in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are now safe and secure with you forever and ever and ever. Friends of yours forever and ever. Thank you for your word which helps us make sense of this world in which we live and of our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.